real or fake? True or false? Authentic or counterfeit? Genuine or a knockoff? If you've ever traveled in New York City, primarily down in the Manhattan area, You've probably noted, as I have noted in the many years that I have traveled to that particular location, lots of vendors selling at least what is purported to be name brand merchandise. Gucci, Chanel, Prada, Seiko. But most of us who have our wits about us know that we need to be cautious when we walk up to a table that is set up in the street, and there is somebody who is vending that merchandise, and it is at a much, much cheaper price than one might be able to find it in a store. And so we develop a certain caution, a certain skepticism, because we know that there are many counterfeits that exist in the world. In a similar vein, then, it seems to me that we shouldn't be terribly surprised that the Bible speaks of what we might deem to be counterfeit Christians, knockoffs from that which is true. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it seems that Paul is writing to Timothy about this very phenomenon. He says, but realize this, that in the last days, Difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then in verse 5 he says, holding to a form of godliness although they have denied its power. And then he concludes by saying, avoid such men as these. It is passages like that, which we have just read, and similar passages that we find in the pages of the New Testament, that prompts us sometimes, perhaps, to ask ourselves the question, what does a real Christian look like? How does genuine discipleship manifest itself? And how can you re recognize and realize the real thing? What strikes me, and, and actually the foundation for our lesson this evening, is going to be four verses in the Bible that I believe help us to distinguish between the fake and the real thing when it comes to Christianity. And so tonight I've entitled the lesson, Portrait of a True Believer. And these four verses that we're going to be looking at from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, you might be turning in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, these four verses, it appears to me, act kind of as a plumb line of sorts, a mechanism whereby we might assess ourselves. And while there is a temptation when we're looking at from the lips of Jesus himself, these words that help us to identify the real McCoy, the true article, the genuine Christian, while there is a temptation sometimes to use these verses 
and look at others and size them up and assess them. It seems to me what I would ask for us to do is to use these four verses for some self-examination. These four verses, I believe, will help us determine if we are truly following through on our commitments to Jesus Christ, to that allegiance that we promised to him when we became a Christian. Those four verses are found in our Bibles in Matthew chapter 5 in that great sermon that Jesus delivers on that mount. In Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, we read these words. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And then in verse 14 he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. These verses, and I have highlighted in particular the two statements of Jesus that I would like to focus upon this evening. He says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. These are the marks, it seems to me, of the genuine article. And before we dig too deeply into these words of Jesus, let's make some initial observations. These word pictures, and that's what they are, these word pictures from the lips of Jesus, notice, if you will, are stated as requirements. Jesus says to those who are committed to be his followers, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Our authenticity, if we're willing to measure it, is measured by the degree to which we meet these particular standards. And notice, if you will, Jesus doesn't say you are like salt or that you will be like at some time in the future. He says you are these things. It is our calling. It is our purpose. It is who we are. It is why, I believe, we live in the world. I'm no Greek scholar, but those who are Greek scholars will tell me about this particular passage that the word you, here in the Greek, is in the emphatic voice. It literally means, from the lips of Jesus, you, my followers, and none others, are the salt and the light. But I want to dig a little bit deeper. I'm trying to get a handle on exactly what is it that Jesus is meaning to suggest by these words when he speaks to that assemblage, that group of people who have followed him to this fairly deserted place, to this mountain region, and he is there preaching this particular sermon. And I believe, as we'll note and we'll give some insight to the statement, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, that we will discover that Jesus is talking about authentic followers with these particular phrases. In other words, what he is telling us are these, I believe, things about genuine disciples. Number one, 
And I believe this is probably lost on most of us. Modern readers of these particular verses probably don't get the gist of perhaps the first idea that Jesus is conveying, and that is the genuine disciples are precious. To comprehend really what Jesus is getting at, we have to look back in history. Salt and light today are taken largely for granted. They're not precious at all. We have salt in all kinds of forms. You can walk into a local restaurant, there will be a salt packet. We can go into the homes of anyone who is assembled here, and there will be salt shakers. You can go into the local store, and you can find block of salts. Many years ago, I remember in the home that we lived in in northern Illinois, we had a water softener. Periodically, I'd have to go to the store, and I would purchase several 50-pound blocks of salt. And what was amazing was how cheap you could buy something that weighed 50 pounds. A 50-pound block of salt back in those days cost me about $3.25. Salt is one of the cheapest things that you can purchase in a store. And light. Light for us is really no big deal either. We sit in this building with all kinds of abundant light. We have light on our key rings. Some of the children here may have gym shoes that have lights in the heels. And as they run or as they walk, those lights flash. We have lights in our cell phones. And without thinking about it, we walk into the rooms of our homes and we flip on that light switch and suddenly the room is flooded with abundant light. But pause for a moment and give some thought to the people that are assembled on that mountainside with Jesus, listening to our Lord in that particular day. For them, things were very, very different. Back then, salt and light were not so common. Both were extremely precious. And so the dilemma we confront living in 2008 is that salt and light are so abundant that perhaps we miss what Jesus is getting at here. And I believe the first thing that he is conveying to his audience is, you, my followers, you, my true believers, are like light and salt. You are precious. History reveals for us, for instance, that salt was deemed by the Greeks to be divine. That's how rare it was. That's how precious it was. History further reveals that Roman soldiers of the day in which Jesus was preaching, Roman soldiers were paid in salt. Most of us are familiar with that common phrase we sometimes hear about somebody who is incompetent. We say, he's not worth his salt. It comes from the days in which salt was used as a form of payment. And those of you who are interested in the etymological background of words, go home tonight and take a dictionary and look up the word salary. What you'll discover is, in history, it comes from the word salt. In a similar vein, light was treasured because it is not easily obtained. Light was a precious commodity. For those people that were sitting at the feet of Jesus in that mountain, they had gone through great expense and trouble to carry with them oil lamps, wicks, and a flint. 
There were no light switches for them to turn on and off, no street lights to line the way as they traveled on those dusty roads in that day and time. And it is a true statement that after sunset people stumbled in the dark because life, frankly, was precious. One writer, a man by the name of Mark Adams, in speaking of this particular passage, and these words of Jesus says this. He says, when Jesus used these two metaphors, salt and light, those people would have understood him to say that in his opinion, genuinely devoted disciples were rare and precious. They were worth their weight in gold or salt. And if you encounter someone who is really serious about following Jesus, passionate about becoming more and more like him, committed to doing his will, remember that individual, he writes, for that person is priceless. That seems to me to be one of the images, one of the ideas that Jesus is attempting to convey here. The preciousness of those who are true believers. In Isaiah chapter 43, beginning in verse 3, the prophet there writes, speaking of the Lord, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You are precious in my sight. So that perhaps was one of the first things that Jesus wanted to get across to his audience. You are the light, you are the salt, you are precious and important to me. But why? One might then ask, why is it the true followers are so valuable? And that leads to the second idea that I think is conveyed by Jesus. Genuine disciples make the lives of others better. When one considers salt and when one considers light, we recognize that those commodities actually make our existence better. Salt adds flavor to food, and light eliminates those depressing shadows. Similarly, Christ followers enrich the lives of those people around them. They add spice and light to a dark and spiritually bland world. Like salt adds flavor to food. Perhaps what Jesus is conveying here, that his true believers, the genuine articles, add flavor to life and their lives brighten up the lives of people who know them, that in the same way a light makes a room more cheery the moment you flip on that switch. Another writer, a man by the name of Herschel Ford, said this. He said, devoted disciples bless those around them because they are selfless, happy, optimistic, joyful, fun to be with people. A genuine disciple is someone that other people like to be around. And I might pause here and suggest that my experience has been, and I don't know you good folks that well, perhaps that's not the case here, but my experience has been that this is one of the areas in which Christians sometimes fail. Sometimes it seems to me that Christians are more joyless than joyful. It's easy sometimes perhaps for Christians to fall or to slip into negativism because of this fallen world in which we live. 
We spend our time focusing on the bad things that go on around about us. And so we have a tendency, perhaps, to sometimes complain and to gripe and become people who are largely devoid of joy. And you know what happens when we behave like that? We who should be the most joyful of people, if we are the ones who go about grumbling and griping, then the people around us that we should be influencing, causing them to want to be Christ-like, they're going to be turned off by our behavior rather than attracted by it. A man by the name of Joe Aldrich once made an interesting point, and he was talking about evangelists. He was talking about that duty and responsibility every single one of us has, whether at school or at work or with our neighbors, to be the light that they see so that they're attracted to become like Christ themselves. Joe Aldridge once made the interesting statement. He said, we must be good news before we can share the good news. And I believe he's on to something here. That if we go around and there is darkness surrounding us and complaining and griping, we are not going to be that which attracts people to become Christians. Then in other words, before we can share the good news, we must be the good news. People must see within us something that is joyful and abounding in life. Another writer tells the story of a woman who was asked if she would like to become a Christian. She replied, and get this, she said, no, I have enough to be sad about already. The writer continues by saying, this misconception is our fault. You see, many people observe fake disciples, Christians who take their eyes off our all-loving, all-powerful Heavenly Father and become sad and insipid rather than salty disciples who embrace light. He says, instead, we embrace a dark demeanor instead of allowing the light of God to be reflected on our faces. Authentic disciples are not this way. Authentic disciples are people whose happiness and optimism is fueled by their trust in God. They live as if they actually believe his promises. They walk close to our Lord. And because they do, they experience abundant life a meaningful life that overflows with living. Real disciples, he says, know how to laugh and rejoice. They embrace this outlook on life because they know that God loves them. They know their sins are forgiven. They know that no matter what bad comes their way, heaven is near. And this kind of attitude, he continues, is precious in this dark, and dreary world of ours. And then this author poses a question. He says, let me ask you, do you go around with a long face griping about life? When you converse, do you find yourself always slipping into complaining mode, grumbling and complaining about your health, grumbling and complaining about high prices, about traffic, about the church, and so on? Is your focus on the inevitable problems of life? Have you allowed the struggles of living in a fallen world to cause your salt to lose its savor? Have you focused 
so much on your own problems that you are hiding the light of God under a bushel of negative attitudes? Are you the guy, he concludes, other people tend to steer clear of because life is hard enough without having to deal with your negativism? Or, he says, are you the kind of individual people gravitate to? The kind of person that makes life better. The kind of person who embraces a joy that is contagious. Is it possible that when Jesus was talking about those members of that assemblage on that hill some 2,000 years ago, that in speaking of salt in life, he was talking about the joyfulness that should be contagious in the hearts of those who are true believers. Paul, it seems, was conveying this very idea when in Philippians chapter 4, verses 14 and then 17 through 18, says, Do all things without grumbling. I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. You stop and think about the man who wrote those words. And he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write them. But one of the things that you get a strong impression of when you read the epistles of Paul is joyfulness. And yet there were so many things that were happening in his life. Things that could have caused him to be negative. Things that could have caused him to complain. But despite the frequency with which he suffered for the cause of Christ, the epistles of Paul ring with the sound of joy. And that's because he was the genuine artist. He was the true believer. And he had deeply embedded in his heart this faithfulness in God that nothing of the world was going to ever shake. As I consider the words of Jesus on that mountainside some 2,000 years ago, it also occurs to me that perhaps Jesus is talking about the fact that genuine disciples keep the world from getting worse. Let's face it. The world is like rotting meat, and the world is a dark place. Enter salt and light. In the same way that salt extends and preserves the life of meat, and in the same way that light illuminates and guides, I believe Jesus here is telling us that we are to be involved in slowing the decline of our culture, helping people to see why right is always better than wrong. In Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 34, the proverb writer there says, Righteousness exalts a nation. Not some kind of nebulous righteousness that comes down from the heavens above. Not a righteousness that is independent of people. But what the proverb writer is telling us, righteousness exalts a nation, is righteousness within the members of that nation. It is Christians who lead a life of fidelity to their Lord in the midst of a dark and dying world that actually preserves the world and exalts a nation. Ray Pritchard, another man who has commented on the words of Jesus and this lesson here that he teaches, 
Another man says, we who follow Christ are to be a moral disinfectant, stopping the spread of evil. We are to be the conscience of the community, speaking out for what is true and right. For that is what salt does. It preserves. And it is the salt of righteousness in the hearts of Christians that preserves a nation. Our job, if we stop and think about it, is to keep this fallen world from getting worse. Some years ago, there was a Peanuts cartoon showed Peppermint Patty and Charlie Brown conversing. Peppermint Patty turns to Charlie Brown and she says, Guess what, Chuck? The first day of school and I got sent to the principal's office. It was your fault, Chuck. Charlie Brown responds in the next caption, my fault? How could it be my fault? Why do you say everything is my fault? To which Peppermint Patty declared, you're my friend, aren't you, Chuck? You should have been a better influence on me. Well, in that particular cartoon, while Peppermint Patty is attempting to pass the buck, much of what she says is true. We should be a good influence on the people around us. It is our calling. It is our job as light of the world, as the salt of the world, to preserve a world that is full of sin and evil. Let's, let's consider a real-life example. In August of 2000, Matt Friedman, a reporter for the Jackson, Mississippi Clarion Ledger, shared the following encounter with a man who I believe understood the concept of authentic discipleship. Here's what Friedman writes. He writes, several months ago, I was on a television show to discuss with other panel members recent problems plaguing the Jackson, Mississippi community. The city council was in disarray because the council president and another councilman were headed to jail. The council president had been caught making shady deals with a strip club in a rezoning ordinance. The panel moderator, a newswoman named Katrina Rankin, looked at Matt Friedman, the writer of this article, and asked, Matt, whose fault is all of this? Matt writes, Suddenly, I became agitated. I was prepared to tell her in dramatic fashion that we are a nation of laws and that the council president trampled on those laws. If we were looking for a place to lay the blame, there was only one place to put it, smack dab in the lap as he sat in his well-deserved jail cell. He writes, that's what I was going to say. But I never got the words out. One of the other panelists sitting next to me was a gentleman named John Perkins, author, Bible teacher, and community developer. Before I could respond to the question, Perkins blurted out, it's my fault. All heads turned his way and he elaborated. He said, I have lived in this community for decades as a Bible teacher. I should have been able to create an environment where what our council president did would have been unthinkable because of my efforts. 
you want someone to blame, he said, I take the blame, all of it. I don't know who this John Perkins was. He made a claim to being a Christian. His words suggest that he was the authentic ark. He knew he had a job to speak up, to be a positive influence. And so he honestly felt that he had failed, failed to be the positive influence in his community that he needed to be if he was a true follower of Christ. But was Jesus getting it when he said, you are the light, when he said, you are the salt, salt and light people, that's what disciples are. They are people who make a difference. We stop and we hear so many sermons sometimes about personal evangelism. You want to be a good personal evangelist? Be a salt and a light person. You want to bring others to Christ? Be a salt and a light person. Those people on that mountainside from 2,000 years ago knew that for salt to be a preservative, it had to be rubbed into the meat. You can't leave it in the barrel. And they also knew that light was only good when used in the darkness. Jesus has always expected his true followers to be involved in the real world. In John chapter 17, a chapter devoted to the true Lord's Prayer. John 17 is a chapter where Jesus is conversing with God in prayer. And one of the things that he says there, he says in John 17, verse 14, beginning, I do not ask you take them out of the world. He's speaking of his disciples, the genuine article. He says, I do not ask you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Jesus understood that the place for his people, his disciples, was not in a monastery, was not isolated and insulated from the world. The place for the true believers was out in the thick of things, being the light and the salt. That is our calling. That is our purpose for being. A Christian doesn't hide his light. He lets it shine. He gets out there and he interacts with the lost people. He applies his faith to life. But as I try to understand exactly what Jesus was getting at in this particular lesson, this particular point from that mountainside from 2,000 years ago, it occurs to me that he is also telling us the genuine disciples point others to God. Genuine disciples. The true thing, the authentic true believer, draws attention not to themselves, but directs attention to God. There's a story of a little boy who was visiting a cathedral with his mother. As he looked around at the beauty of the stained glass windows, 
curiosity finally got the better of him, and he asked his mother, who are all these people that were illustrated in those stained glass windows? To which his mother responded, those are Christians. And then sensing the teaching moment, she said, do you know what Christians are? She let her little son think for a moment, and then she said, they are people the light shines in. That's what's real disciples. They let Jesus shine through them. They follow Jesus so closely that they literally let him use them in such a way that they disappear themselves and Jesus Christ is evident. If you ever see someone who does good to be seen of men, what you are seeing is a counterfeit disciple. That's another point that Jesus was making in Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 2. He says, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. And then in verse 5, but they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. If we're up to this assessment, if we truly want to know from Jesus' lips what constitutes an authentic disciple, it is someone who ceases to be visible to the world because the presence of Christ is seen in them. Authentic disciples always lift Jesus up. When Jesus said, let your light shine, he didn't tell us to hold it up and say, look at me, I'm a Christian, I'm good, I'm a wonderful person. A light does not call attention to itself. Rather, it points the way to the darkness. And in this regard, think about salt. Salt is a great illustration of the principle of discipleship. One of its functions is to make something taste good. When I eat a piece of sweet corn, corn on the cob, and I take a bite and I decide that it doesn't taste quite right, and I take that salt and I sprinkle it on there, and then I eat that corn on the cob, when I get finished, I don't say that was great salt. I say that was great corn on the cob. I've never been able to understand, but there are some people who put salt on their watermelon. It's lost on me, but they'll tell you when they do that that it makes the watermelon taste better. It brings out the flavor of the watermelon. And when a person finishes watermelon, upon which they have sprinkled salt, they don't say that was great salt. They say that was great watermelon. The job, please don't miss this, the job of the salt is to reveal the flavor of the meal, and the job of a true believer is to reveal the flavor of the Savior. J. 
here in our text in Matthew chapter 5. That's what Jesus says in verse 16 when He says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Don't miss that point. Yes, we engage in good works, but not to our own glory. To the glory of God. That we seek even to be visible because our good works are so good, the only source could be from God. And men see those good works in us and they glorify our Father in heaven. It's the very thing that Peter had in mind in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so they may, because of your good deeds, glorify God. Four little verses from the lips of Jesus Christ on a mountainside some 2,000 years ago. Four little verses about salt and light. But what a powerful message from Jesus our Savior and the very Son of God about the authentic Christian. The true believer, the true follower is a person of salt and light. I'm going to make one request of you. Simple request. And that is this. This week, as you salt your meal, think about what that salt is doing. And think about what we can be doing for the kingdom of God. And this week when you walk into a room that is darkened and you throw that light switch and that light is illuminated with that brilliant light, keep in mind the words of Jesus who spoke of that light and that salt. And in your life, live up to those expectations of our King, Jesus Christ. Be authentic. Be true. To that King of ours, the Son of God. If you're not a child of God this evening, you can become the salt and the light by coming to Jesus and obeying Him. He is the source of all light. He has a grand and glorious journey to begin. And for those of us who are Christians, it is a journey we need to continue to go forth from this building into the community, into the schools, and into our workplace, and into our neighborhoods, and show people by our lives Jesus Christ. Are you up for the challenge? If we can assist you in becoming a child of God or rededicating yourself to Him through the prayers of the saints at this place, then we invite you to come while we stand and sing.